Howdy do, everyone. It's uh, Nicholas and Gabriel here with Two Crickets and a Thorn Tree. Um, I hope you've noticed our new fantastic logo de- designed by the uh, brilliant Alex Vies, um, which we think is, well, the crickets are very fun. Very good. <laughs> I see Gabriel slipped into a slightly more uh, Russian mood. Wet weather, depressing politics, yes. everything happening quickly, nothing changing. It feels like home. Yes, no... <laughs> We are feeling a little bit sort of a bleak depth God, of despair. It's been Russian. a rough week. Yeah, no, it has. Uh, so, I mean, I keep going on because I'm a complete pessimist about the death of hope. Mm. Um, but yeah. this week has been a bad week for hope. Trigger warning. <laughs> <laughs> hope gone die. <laughs> uh, because we have had uh, not only the the uh, the unveiling of the of the official plans of looting, which the IRR has been warning about for a while. Uh, that is prescribed assets. Yeah. To, uh, um, but also, you know, advancing forward with the destruction of property rights, executive, the executive taking away uh, your your right to compensation if the government yoinks your property from you. Dude, hope is like a cat that keeps, it can die nine times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just when you think things have gotten hopeless, it can always be worse. It can be much more it hopeless. It can always be worse. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's not good. <laughs> No, that's pretty solidly not good. And big ups to some of the major media outlets for covering it half for for covering it seriously. And uh, man, has the bar gotten a bit low? No, I think Carol Payton. I I think Carol Payton, who writes for the Business Day and wrote the cover story for them today about mm. the prescribed assets moves. Well, which is not starting exactly with prescribed assets. It's starting with Kasatu, the major union, saying that the major pension fund, 2.2 trillion rand, the single biggest investor in the company, the PIC, Public Investment Corporation, which manages the government employees' pension fund, needs to put in 250 billion rand of basically, I mean, they haven't exactly explained what the financial instrument is going to be, but some kind of no-strings-attached bailout. So either a no-coupon bond, so you can pay us back whenever you feel like it, or a, a, a sort of term... No term limit bond, so the principal never. Because you know, when 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 uh, when money has been spent irresponsibly, when there's been mismanagement, when there's uh, no return on investment, the exact right thing to do is to make sure that you give them a loan with no strings. Yep. After firing or shouldering out Jabba Mabuza, the former chairman of the board, the only guy who was talking about real reform, changing the procurement policies. Uh, getting off of the silly bromides of socialist ideology and retrenching some of the 33% of staff that he said are at least that many staff are are redundant. Um, and according to the wonderful ESCOM Supush app, which I recommend everyone listening to this download, yeah, uh, it is it is fantastic. Also, we have some international listeners. If you don't get the joke of ESCOM Supush, then <laughs> Google it and enjoy. Yeah, that's good. Um we our load shedding is set to continue for the rest of the weekend, and the next eighteen months. Well, yes, but I mean, like this particular little batch. Um, I think that they're, we're really close to getting to the stage where they no longer, you know, say uh, notify us of, of load shedding because it will be the norm. Yeah, I think they're going to notify us of like of, full electrical yeah, yeah. power service. We will have full power service in three weeks for two days. Public service <laughs> announcement: Please turn off your generators. Between 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock next Saturday because there's a big rugby slash soccer match and we've decided to give the country electricity. Yeah, no, exactly. And um, 
my my family has just constructed a generator house. It's being built as I left for work today uh-huh. uh, to house the little generator. So that's wonderful news. Yeah, I knew it is good news, and I think it's it's an investment that. Uh, our quiz master was just talking about mm, very good idea. If if you and our are, quiz buddy, if you are South African and if you can afford it, yeah, I'd recommend you getting a generator. And if you can't afford it, may God rest your soul. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then come work at the IRR because we have a generator. But somehow all of this on and off seems to have knocked out our Wi-Fi. Yeah, no, that's true. Oh no, I believe it's a problem beyond the the office. Thank thank goodness, it's not the collapse of the country quite yet. Okay, um, but it has but it it it, it has been bleak and it's just. So, so in terms of hope, there's a bit of a metaphor that I am keen to repeat, and that's that South African memes come a year after the facts. Yes. So 2017, Sora Ramaphosa beats and causes Anad Lumini Zuma. It's the most important political victory, I think, in a major election. Or at least uh, it might have been. Yeah, it might have been. It, it had the potential to be something. But it was a moment to look up at the stars and and then look down and see on the horizon some gleaming light looming and to we say had, this we, could be a new dawn. We had two forks in the road and we could have gone down the really bad one, but instead we just went down the, well, we're still finding out what exactly is down that road. Yeah. But it's but, not good but, so far. But, but the new dawn meme, meme, the weird idea about the new dawn is that it only became a thing in 2018 and it became a thing quite long after Ramaphosa had actually become president. Mm. It was around Mandela's birthday, actually, I think in the middle of winter, mm. where, where Beyonce came, Obama came, sort of around that season. We had a lot of uh, celebrities, a lot of luster, and, you know that and the Qataris and the Chinese uh, sort of statespersons promised under conditions that no one knows to lend us or give us some money. So I would just like to repeat my often stated uh, a piece of advice for analyzing the Middle East, which connects to this. Mm-hmm. How do you figure out who the bad guys are in a Middle Eastern conflict? How, Nicholas? Whichever side the Qataris are giving money to. Because <laughs> <laughs> they pick all sides, but they don't pick the good ones they at the right They pick times. the good ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so a little bit of that. Um, but, but that's the time that we started talking about the new dawn. In fact, 2018, when that was happening, that's the false dawn. Because that's when Ramaphosa became president, said he wants to expropriate property without compensation, that he wants to reform without firing any, anyone or sending anyone to jail. Instead that of he like wants Ukraine, to destroy the private so, health system. Exactly. Instead of sort of setting up a high court as they did in Ukraine of corruption, because they had corruption like ours with lots of oligarchs and stuff, he said, "No, we're going to have the Zonda Commission, which, sweet as it is, is which." Uh, I mean, it's I, still going. It, everyone's ignoring it, I think, at this point. It's um, total fatigue because, because it's how long can you go to the circus of no consequences? Exactly. And keep expecting to be entertained by the clowns I read, I read the of other day upside down going. thinking. I read the other day it was still going. And I was, I, to quote the president, I was shocked. Yeah. We are, <laughs> there's a lot of shock. So 2018, we said new dawn, but that's when it was clear it was a false dawn. In 2019, that's when False Dawn came out. I wish I could remember the journalist's name, but he's a really good journalist. He said, no, this is not a new dawn, this is a false dawn. Mm. And that meme started to spread. But 2019, if you actually looked at the facts, that wasn't a false dawn. That's when the vision coalesced. Mm. The ANC has three factions as I read it. There's the race nationalist faction, a lot of looters, a lot of people who say, if you say I'm corrupt, then you must be a racist, or you must be impimpy, or you must be a puppet of Mossad or the CIA. they're they're uh, They're not necessarily in what we call the sort of, they're not the traditional version of what one might see as the brain's trust. They, they often have a very, um, 
slapdash approach to things. Yeah, but very cunning. And they're very cunning, but they they don't have they're not sort of very complicated. It's there's mm-hmm. a lot of race going on there. There's a lot of just sort of we deserve it. Yeah. It's ours, yeah. and you can go to hell. It is our turn to eat. Yes, and bugger off while we're eating. Yeah. So that's one faction, and that faction really grew in power under Zuma. Yeah. And a third of GDP was stolen, at least. Yes. And and people like Adrian Brasson and apparently the whole of Media Twenty Four seems to believe that that is the that's only the ANC. That's, that's, the the only that's the problem. Yeah. Is only those guys. And then there's the reformers. Yes. And then there's the reformers. But there's another branch of the ANC. In the forties, apartheid came along in its newly codified, brutalized, inhuman way. <laughs> And the ANC, which had been going since Saul Plyke in a very mild-mannered, gentlemanly way, writing really good journalism. In fact, a lot like the IRR. Like a lot of what they were all about was gathering stories, taking them to important people, getting them in the media in South Africa and in London, uh, because we were a British colony at the time that really mattered, appealing to the King of England, this kind of thing, on, on the base of humanitarian and prudent grounds. The ANC went from being that to looking at like, well, okay, we've got apartheid. We're getting no allegiance from the queen. In fact, the apartheid movement is partly about dropping out of the Commonwealth. Mm, mm. Uh, and then that's give, giving a big uh, thumb in the eye of, of the United Kingdom. So we're going to go to the Soviets. And Moscow continues to this day to inject communist ideals with the last Soviet satellite states. And I'm not saying Moscow as without, in, a, without a Soviet th- Union. <laughs> at, as in the little Kremlin. Exactly. It's not the Kremlin anymore. It's the Marxist sausage factories that we call universities for some mm. reason that I am losing my mind about trying to understand that continue to inject the idea that adding value and solving problems is the problem. Yes. And that the solution is to do less and share everything. Because apparently then everyone will be able to be a humanities professor. Yeah. Which is obviously what the whole of society should be geared towards. Especially if you're a humanity professor yes. sitting from that high chair. No, no, obviously, because everyone just wants to be you. I, I'm, we are, if we're sounding a bit sardonic, then let me just explain. We had lunch in Melville and drove back to the office <laughs> past a head of one of the most important political science departments at one of the most important two universities in the country, who said to me Starts with a w. that he <laughs> cannot wait for rent boycotts and land invasions in a big way. It'll be just like the 80s and 90s, the most exciting time to be alive and the last time that true Marxist ideals stood a chance of getting a grip on an advanced country like South Africa. You know, I can't wait until he's sitting overseas in 15 years from now in London or Amsterdam or Stockholm and he's writing articles like, how did the revolution go so wrong? Yeah, he'll be shocked, just he'll, like everyone he'll else He'll be is shocked. so shocked. He'll be so surprised. He'll be like, hmm, you know, it must be because of all those sanctions that the US put on the country after Limpopo seceded. Yes, and the gender normative language with which the UN sort of described us as a country that's uh, abusing human rights. You should follow the UN on Twitter. That's changing very rapidly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, they put out a list of um, don't use chairperson, use chair. Because oh this, is, this is the great things that are, that are bedeviling the world right now. In a world where you have, you have countries where you know, women can't vote and mm. uh, gay people are stoned to death. Hmm. And uh, and laws are made that you can execute gay people. Yes, and people are, are are executed for 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 blasphemy, and people live live and die in horrid poverty. No, no, the real problem 
is that we're calling chairman, uh, we're calling uh, even woman chairman. Yeah. That's... Which also Saragon has a big thing about that because the man and chairman is like batsman. It comes from the Latin word for hand. Hand of the chair is chairman. Well, Manus, it's, it's, to it's, manipulate. It's the same root. Yeah. Manus is a hand. And, and also... So she refuses to call anyone a chairwoman. She's like... I'm saying he's the chair of the hand of the chair and she is the woman of the chair. That sounds, we're all hands of the chair if we're a chairman. I agree. And, and, and the, the, the other thing is, of course, that the word man itself, if you go back in the etymology into old, old English, mm. uh, uh, originally meant human. Mm. Not as in, not uh, male, not oh. head of the household. It used to mean human. Mm. Yeah. Well, let's not get lost in details. <laughs> what really matters Isn't is people are saying chairman. People are saying chairman, and that needs to stop. Yes. Yes. Okay. But so the point is that there's uh, back to the ANC that there's this middle faction of of proper communists who want to take the four and a half trillion rand of assets and pension funds in this country. It's the largest ratio to GDP of anywhere in the world. Mm. It's like for various bizarre reasons. I think a lot to do with the fact that we've had tremendous political upheaval here mm. for many decades people have sort of saved in this relatively secure way pension funds are not the best returns generally speaking you are probably going to do better if you're betting on the stock market or developing real estate yourself flipping houses and stuff but all of that stuff kind of depends on you thinking mm. that there's political stability in the long term pension funds are kind of a relatively safe way to do it so we have high level of pension funds and that money is now being chased after together with property uh, the big story of last week, the president saying that not only does he want to expropriate without compensation, but he wants to be the one, or he and his executive going down to the well, low-level bureaucrats yeah, in, in the rural heartland are going to be the ones to decide yeah. how much your property gets expropriated for. So this 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 red faction of the ANC, um, they is, won is, in 2019. That was their big year. They are confused with reformers yeah. in the sense that, uh, well, of course, many of our esteemed journalistic colleagues and I, I'm, I'm picking on News 24 just because they've been such a propaganda outlet for that faction of the ANC you know they yeah. keep having these hagiographic uh, interviews oh of, of Pravin Godan they love Pravin Godan you know what he did he doubled the debt he doubled the debt riddle me that and he was at the heart of Zuma's government and, and even he wasn't even very effective at stopping a lot of nonsense no <laughs> what nonsense did he stop I'm waiting for the day where I'm opposing I mean we had this. We had this moment where at Davos, uh, one of our journalists speaks to that uh, British guy, Richard Quest, and he says, "No, you guys can't keep yeah, coming." Yeah, because Bruce Whist Whitfield was uh, interviewing uh, Richard Quest. Yeah, and he says, "You can't keep. You, you guys can't keep saying I'm so shocked, I'm so surprised at all of this stuff." You were deputy president. It's like what Ramaphosa and Praveen Gordon should have been doing for the last couple of years, if they were real reformers, was spelling out to us clearly hmm. where bad things could have gone wrong. Mm. And they stopped it. And now that we're in charge, we can tell you about it so that you can trust us. The only there's been none of that. There's there's basically two ANC politicians who have said anything like something sensible recently, and that is Tito Mboweni and Khalem Mbotlante. Yeah. And Tito Mboweni keeps losing battles whenever he tries to stop incredibly stupid things happening yeah. in the ANC. Um, like he is constantly on the verge of a disciplinary for saying that nationalizing the Reserve Bank is a bad idea yeah, and that we need to talk about it more. No, no, he's a disloyal cater of the movement. Uh, and Katlema Watlante says, oh, land, uh, the EWC is a terrible idea and then it's completely ignored. Katlema Watlante is like, <laughs> man, I know families like that who there's some rude families where, especially like bourgeois cats, they just, they will only invite their parents to a thing once a year 
and then they won't talk to them. Mm-hmm. They're just they're just like, okay, we are family people. We don't we haven't kicked our parents totally out of the family, but even when they're in front of us, we talk about how much we hate our parents so, and like. So while that that's the real reform faction, while it may technically exist. Yeah. Apart from Tito in the finance position, it's in a very very bad way. Yeah, dude, they're like an air conditioning unit in the middle of the Sahara. Yeah. Trying to cool things down and let uh, smart heads prevail. So the Red Dawn is coming upon us? Uh, yeah, so, the, so 2019 was the year of the Red Dawn, but I, my prediction is that 2020 is the year that people figure it out and that New 24 flips and that... <laughs> you see, my problem is that my hope has not all died. <laughs> Nicholas is more advanced than me. But I think this is the year that you're going to see... If, if you're taking a bet that the South African media is going to make the responsible call, you're taking the wrong bet. They always do it a couple of years after it. Remember, and you know this better than I do even, the details of it, of how long it took the media to flip on Zuma. Jesus, and how they didn't go from, from anti-Zuma, they didn't go from uh, from sort of neutral to anti-Zuma. Yeah. They went from pro-Zuma they went from proper to pro-Zuma. neutral yeah. to anti-Zuma. Slowly. And each one of those between fifth gear and reverse... <laughs> There was like 15 other gears of subtle distinction. Zoom is bad, but not that bad. Zoom is not that bad. Yeah, he was, I mean, despite there have always been a couple of critics in the sort of, I uh, would say, more lefty media of Zuma, like uh, people like Zapiro. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there he was uh, being cast as the man of the people. Yeah. Uh, they said he was the great populist surge of the, the authentic ANC who had been in the country, not these ones who had gone into exile and corrupted it yeah. with their nasty foreign ideas. He was allied to the communists, so obviously, therefore, he was good because um, they're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's this weird... I mean, so just I suppose to give one bit of a sop to, to at least to understand why they like this. I've, I felt it very much growing up... Uh, so much of the world fell into the Cold War way of thinking that one side is right and the other side is wrong. And what the South African Nationalist Party did was sort of say everything about communism is bad. We didn't have the problem that London and some of uh, New England in America had of apologizing for Stalin until 10 years after Solzhenitsyn and others have revealed the tens of millions that have been killed there. Uh, uh, South Africa's government and South Africa's Chattering classes, really, to a very large extent, were were very harsh on the socialists. And I've read daily, I've read Rand Daily Mail articles and stuff from the 1960s and the 1970s. And you do often find references to people like Solzhenitsyn, uh, even made by liberals or, or lefties <coughs> who who didn't like apartheid, saying, "Look, we get it about how terrible the communist thing is. Mm. We, we want to." Mm caution ourselves against that but the SACP the South African Communist Party was important it kind of won the ear of the ANC and the Soviet bloc did this thing where at the UN it rallied its satellite states and I think eventually managed to flip the Dutch and a few others who felt quite connected to guilt about apartheid and they got them to ratify the claim that the ANC is the, quote, sole authentic representative of black South Africa and then to the ANC's, quote, the sole represent- authentic representative of South Africa. And so the ANC has sort of, I think, lived with that blessing and that curse. In a lot of ways, people think being anti-ANC is being anti-South Africa and a lot of ways because the ANC was communist, people thought being anti-communist was somehow anti-black people allow- being allowed to vote, anti-liberalism. Yes. Uh, 
and and those conflations persisted through the 90s and the 2000s, especially because the Berlin Wall fell and Nelson Mandela came out and said, guys, we're not nationalizing the banks, the mines, or the land. We're going to do this market-driven way. We see how those who sponsored us before actually ended up sowing the seeds of their own destruction. But at the same time, you have, you know, that element of the ANC doesn't really go away. So and like always- the uh, serial killer at the end of the movie, mm. it comes back to life. Oh, and uh, yeah. it's gone back to, well, causing problems. Yeah, but so, so I just want to say that the Roygefaar is this phrase, the red danger that was often applied. Like if someone was saying, watch out for the ANC because they're a bunch of communists, they'd say, oh, you're just, this is just neo-McCarthyism, mm. right? And I think there was some fairness to that in the 90s because I think Nelson Mandela really was doing a really, quite an effective job of isolating socialists in the party. And Thabo Mbeki sort of almost let them back into the tent, but not really. He rejected the basic income grant. He managed to run a budget surplus, taking in more taxes than he was spending. Monetary policy has been consistently uh, conservative. Uh, in terms of that... Uh, mistake that that faction of the ANC felt very isolated and alienated and you had people like Hernando de Soto thinking to come and visit South Africa and talk about spreading title deeds and letting peasants become homeowners and taking charge of their lives and letting South Africa look more like rural uh, France or rural Germany or rural Poland than it looks like rural medieval France or rural medieval Poland (laughs) and uh they, and they won it back from them, and that's a story that we've that we've long told. Anyway, so the Red Dawn really landed in 2019. Ramaphosa, I think, made it clear that he was more behind Pravin Gordon than he was behind Tito Mbaweni. The, the breakneck issue was ESCOM and, and, and whether we're going to do any retrenchments there, whether the finance minister is going to win. He's saying we can't give any more money to ESCOM or whether the Minister of Public Enterprises is going to win. He says, no, we've got to keep everyone in there because proper socialists don't fire people. They just coddle them. Gareth Van Onsen has done a very good Twitter thread on the, you know, Sir Ramaphosa is a reformer thing yeah. today. And, it, uh, well, I mean, you probably only hear this tomorrow, but <laughs> it would have been yesterday. Uh, Time. <laughs> It's a tricky thing. Um, and it is just wonderful. He just sort of, I think he's got 15 tweets in a, in a row that he just goes through like all of the things that Soron Poza has done yeah. to prove that he is not a reformer in any good sense of that word. No, but this is, exa- but he is a reformer in the sense that he is a proper socialist reformer. I think if you look at uh, Vladimir Lenin, if you look at Tito, if you look at whoever it was who was running Cuba, if you look at Che Guarez, you know, there have been socialists in the past who have taken over governments that were not socialist and have made them into proper socialist states. And I mean socialist in the sense of spreading government ownership and spreading government discretion over ownership. And undermining property rights. In a way, I mean, that does undermine our property rights and, and uh, tanks the economy. I don't mean socialist as in you've got such secure property rights as you do in Sweden that you've got great IP, great uh, services, and then you just tax people a lot. That you can give everyone a you know, free university education or something. Yeah, big difference between taxing people's income and taking people's stuff. Hmm. Right, and I'm talking about the taking people's stuff brand of socialism. And well, this degree of... Of, of, of difference, oh, you know, degree difference, not uh, not a. Yeah, I think it's a deep one. Myself, anyway, <laughs> that stuff really landed hard last year. National health insurance scheme. We're going to take away businesses from. We're going to take away private business. 
in the medical sector and turn turn every hospital clinic and what we can into one ESCOM. And we're going to keep ESCOM super big. We're going to keep all our state-owned enterprises. We're not going to privatize the losing South African Airways. And we're going to expropriate property without compensation. And we're going to pay for some of this through prescribed assets by looting the pension pot. I think the Red Dawn is going to land in 2020. Here's a, yeah. So I've got a sort of weird fever dream vision of the future, yeah, which is called the. Um, <laughs> I don't know why I want to go back to Media Twenty Four again, but tell us about Media the, the sort of twisted Media Twenty Four um, way that they usher in the collapse of democracy in the country, hmm. uh, which is that Cyril or even David Mabuza comes to power, and we'll get onto this in a second. But they arrest all of the racial nationalist looters, mm-hmm. you know. Ace Makashula, Zuma, all of them. They go to jail and they get real time and they're actually punished for their crimes. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the media goes wild. They're like, this is the best thing that's ever happened. Soro Ramaphosa is who he said he was. Mm. He saved the country. There'll probably even be a bounce back in business confidence and things. Yeah. And it'll last for about five minutes until he uses that new, whether it's Mabuza or, or the Ramaphosa. Media bump. Yeah. Uh, and all the business confidence and maybe even the slight uptick in GDP yeah. uh, to crush civil society, <laughs> tamp down our, our sort of political rights mm. and establish uh, his personal authoritarian dictatorship. authoritarian dictatorship over the country. Yeah. No, I think that's a, I think that's a plausible alternative. So and it is one of the things that... Beware yeah. of the arrest of the racial nationalist looters. Because yeah, look at how it's done. In a lot of ways, the, the faction fighting and the stasis inside the ANC has prevented the destruction of some of South Africa's rights because no one can make a move to overpower the others. It can mm-hmm. always be used. The liberal structure of our constitution and our government and our democracy can be used as a club against the other side of the ANC. Yeah, it's the strange blessing of incompetence and gridlock. <laughs> yes. Is if nothing's being done, then it might be slightly better than... But if a faction wins, yeah. and both of them, as we've talked just talked about, are very bad... Yeah. Uh, then we could slide into either the sort of just straight-up looter racist state or uh, the sort of red Venezuela-esque type of dysfunctional policy state. Yeah. Okay, so is there a ray of hope? Yes, there is. As it turns out, this week that was so bleak had one really good moment. I think a potentially historic moment. I think the kind of moment that if you're looking back on South African history in 100 years... Uh, 20, 21, 22, 20, 2120, the year 2120. Mm-hmm. I think people might, uh, if they study South African history at university, cool. maybe even at matric, I think they might think this was it. Yes. And it's the DA's release of a proposal. Yes. It's not fully landed, but the DA's release of a proposal to abandon race-based policy. Definitely. Um and I can't know, imagine. It's been very long time. The party's never fully fully embraced it, except it sort of has, but then it sort of hasn't because there was always such resistance to it from within. Yeah. Uh, but it says unambiguously in the document, there's no more fuzzy terms. It just says there we do not rep- re- recognize people as groups. We will not have quotas. People are not a function of their race, gender. They're not an envoy of their race, and the law in particular yes. is not a thing to categorize people by race. And... That's really good. And it's yeah. a ray of hope for the DA. And if they adopt that, and if they choose the right leader mm. um, in the conference uh, in later this year, mm-hmm. that'll be a very good sign that the opposition is back on track yeah. and in a in 
possibly even a better way than before, at least ideologically. And it can go back into fighting the battle of ideas and maybe winning a couple of battles for a change. Yeah, and my theory about that is we've talked a little bit about the teleological, teleological paradox, but I'm going to go over it again very briefly. Telic, Greek word for goal. So it turns out there's some goals where the more f- focus you apply in aiming for that goal, the harder it is to reach it. Perfect sort of almost by definition example is spontaneity. The more you plan to be spontaneous, the harder it is to really be spontaneous. The, spontaneous are, yeah. the more you're shooting for happiness, many people will say, I'm not sure if they're right, uh, the harder it is to be happy. They'll mm. say happiness has to be a byproduct. Find something else, go for that, and mm. then you get happiness as a byproduct if you do it well. And the DA in its quest for black voters yeah. has done exactly that by trying really hard, talking about race all the time, trying to be a little bit more like the ANC, has just proven to black voters that it can't really That they're a bunch of, like, that. what is there to like about someone who comes well, and says, oh, I've noticed your skin color. That That's important. I'd like you to be with me. But like, what appeal is there in that? If you aren't, if there is any appeal in that, why not rather go to a party that's going to say, "Hey, I notice your skin color, and everyone of our skin color is going to take all of the stuff from white people, drive them into the sea, and then we're going to have utopia." That's the EFF's message. Mm. I don't see how you're competing if you're approaching someone as a racial unit. I don't see how you can ever outcompete the the EFF. But if you approach someone as a person and you say, "Hey, I noticed that you saved five hundred rand every month." I was speaking to someone at our quiz uh, who works in the staff there and she saves a little bit of money every month. She's now got enough money to tile her home. Mm. I go to that person and say, can you sell your home? No, I can't. Why not? I don't have a document to say that it's mine. Yep. I'm just sitting there. You know what we want to do for you? Give you a we want to help you get a title deed. Mm. That's, dude, then I'm beating the EFF so hard no. they, that people... You build a coalition of all the value adders, the builders in the country. That's what you need. Who exist... You know, there's a sort of a lefty meme that that when you say something like the value adders, you're you're it's just coded speak for oh, just the elite. Oh God! But that's rubbish. People from the lowest ranks to the highest. Did street sweepers in Yeovil? Bless them. Exactly. Anyone late who, on a Sunday night, anyone working who, their asses off. Anyone who works a job hard. Yeah. Anyone who looks after their kids. Yeah. Anyone who saves money responsibly. Anyone who does anything to help their. Anyone community. who calls the police when they see their neighbor being robbed. Anyone who, who basically takes a bit of a risk sometimes to invest in the future mm-hmm. is a builder. Yeah. And the DA needs to capture those people. It needs yeah. to get them to vote for them. And it's a, I think it's a, it is a powerful message because there are people who are, you know, you might say, oh, everyone's like that. No, 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 everyone's like that. No. Um, and the ANC has made a, a virtue of praising people who are not like that. Yeah. And Tony so Yengeni goes to jail. First big, the ANC chief whip goes to jail for blatant corruption. Buying and getting a Mercedes Benz for free. This is like late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. He's ululated. He's celebrated going to jail as if he was arrested by the apartheid government mm. for protesting against apartheid. Mm, mm. It's like the, the system of the, the, the key thing about the esteem economy. I always come back to this, the fact that uh, the guys who wrote the economy of esteem, the professor, the, anyway, they got the idea from, I think his name is Robert Braithwaite, this Australian criminologist who was looking at prison and saying, in prison, most obviously, do you have the manifestation of the upside-down pyramid where everything that's valued outside of society, investing in the future, being a family-oriented person, helping others out, uh, being smart and innovative and solving other people's problems, all of that becomes what 
you get denigrated for. And all of the things outside that you get dissed for, here you get celebrated for. Mm. I mean, it's just really, really obvious. If you imagine any TV show you've seen about a prison or every, any book you've read about a prison, or if you've been to a prison, uh, which I've done <laughs> for yeah, a few reasons. Tell us more. That we're not going to get into. <laughs> uh, then you know that's exactly how it is. Yeah. It, you flip it upside down. And the ANC went through this situation where being in prison really was an honorable thing to do. Being in the Robben Island uh, School of freedom i think is a badge of honor being arrested by the apartheid government for 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 the struggle but that had to change after 94 and it didn't yeah and we still celebrate breakers and we still celebrate looters and thieves and excuse makers and library burners and security guard harassers and uh yeah. and the and the works yeah so and people who slap people in lines exactly <laughs> So, but there's two kinds of so there's two kinds of tele paradoxes. The one is how does the DA of appeal to voters? Does it appeal to voters by the color of their skin and thereby get more? Uh, I mean, it's already the most diverse party in the country mm. in terms of uh, it's the people who support it with a vote, but it certainly needs to grow, particularly amongst black people, mm. if it's going to ever win, because black people make the majority of the country. Mm. So you've noticed that fact. Now, what do you do? Do you just chase uh, you know people based on how they look? Or do you chase people based on their mm. values? That's the one telling paradox. That ironically, if you chase people based on their values, I think you're going to end up getting lots more black people than if you're directly appealing to mm. black people. Because if all people get fed up at some point or another with uh, getting dragged along by their nose, if it's not connecting to their true values. Mm. The second telling paradox is this. Race-based policy, my view is that race-based policy can be appropriate. I don't think it's always totally evil. Here's one place where it's certainly appropriate. In a time of war, uh, if you have to police uh, diverse societies and you want to make sure that the police look like the societies that they're policing, then you can totally have quotas in the police force to try and make it work if empirically it turns out that that's going to keep the peace. Because in the time of war, due process is something that gets slightly less value and uh, I think that there's a pretty strong case to be made for people uh, uh, taking it better if they're being policed by people that come from inside the communities and that look like them and talk like them and relate to them. But let's not get bogged down with that. Okay, What's your so, point? So even if you don't like that idea, uh, BE hasn't worked. All race-based policy at this point can't work because we've got a very multiracial uh, elite in a very unequal society and all of these laws reduce productivity and increase the barriers to entry for new entrants and so basically you just get guys like you and me who went to very nice private school went to good universities and at those schools and at those universities you see a lot of black people and a lot of white people Indian people colored people mm. they're going to keep staying on the inside of the they of start the, they start the moat they start businesses together yeah, that's yeah. exactly how it works. All of my all of my alumni friends that have done well have started businesses together in multiracial coalitions, and it's kind of sweet. But not all of those businesses are as competitive as they would be if there weren't this kind of regulation some of the, to some of prevent are, barriers to entry. Some of them are cycling off the government teat and being yeah. excused for inefficiencies that otherwise the market would strangle out of them. And the people that ultimately lose from that are the people that don't have a job and that, in order to get a job, mm. depend mm. on a growing economy. Mm. So. There's a telic paradox. If all you care about, and this is not all I care about, but I understand why some people are like this, especially at News 24. <laughs> if all you care about is poor black unemployed people, much more than 50% of whom, if they're in the youth uh, age group, are unemployed. Hmm. 
What are you going to do to make them better off? You could make a law right now to say, this law says that only poor, unemployed black people get to do this and that or get some money. And you would drive millions out of the workforce. Of whites and black people. Yes. And you would drive a lot of money out of the country and you'd make everything much more difficult. It turns out that if, if the target that you want to hit is uplifting poor, unemployed black people, Scrap race-based laws. Then the way to shoot for it is by aiming for something else, which is value-add, getting rid of laws that get in the way of value-add. Precisely. And it's... Now, here's the thing. I took a few minutes to explain that to you. And we know each other well, and our listeners, I think, have got some familiarity with us. Right? They obviously have some patience because they listen to us. (laughs) Because we talk slow. Okay? But it's a little bit complicated. To make life better off for this group of people, you need to make the rules not preference this group of people, but Mm. just be uh, neutral about these kinds of categories. At first glance, it's a paradox, teleological paradox, like saying happiness, don't aim for happiness, aim for something else, and then you'll get happiness. Mm. It's a little bit complicated to explain. No one in the media has even tried, outside of politics web, in the last decade, To explain it. John Stiernes and the leader of the DA tweeted the most troll-baiting tweet that I've seen (laughs) in a very long time. He said, BEE costs black people 10%. Of what, how, where, why. Has anyone written an Africa fact check or any kind of fact check piece about that? Uh, Not to my knowledge. I looked it up. I haven't found anything. Because they're not prepared to even engage with it. Because the media knows because that... Because they're scared that they'll be like, no, no, it's wrong. It's actually 30%. Yeah, so I did some back-of-the-paper-napkin uh, calculations, but that's going into an article of mine, so I'm not going to tell you what my findings were yet. <laughs> Small plug for my own journalism. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll, but... You, you are our top financial journalist. Nicholas, <laughs> I'm, we agreed not to swear on this podcast, so I'm going to hold back right now. But so here's my theory. The media doesn't know how to explain it because the media's rules of engagement have been that if you say anything like that, you must be a racist. If you say anything about non-racialism, how we must do away with race-based policy, then you must be secretly like flying the flag of apartheid and wanting all black people to go to hell. It doesn't really make sense, but those are the norms of the public square that they've established. Anyone who doubts their orthodoxy gets uh, spat in the face. Richard Maponya, the great BEE, sorry, the great... uh, Um, black business person of Soweto, he dies and he hates BEE. No one mentions it, right? Mm. Because they just can't grapple with the fact that South Africa's favorite uh, capitalist also hates BEE. Yeah, because he's he's what people like the EFF claim to want in the country. But it's not what they actually want in the country because he would undermine them completely. Yeah, because he's independent. He's independent of thought. He's independent of means. He doesn't depend on the government's teeth to keep himself and his family nourished. So they they hold him up as a symbol of black excellence, but then actually distort that symbol to be mean completely the opposite. The puppet mastery. There is something sick about how successful black people for a long time get puppeted by those who would celebrate their names. Did you get, see, get, get their minds hollowed out. Did you see the, uh, what's it called? Um, In their representation. What is it? Uh, uh, our richest man, what's his name? Patrice Mosefer. Yeah. He, uh, he says to the Donald Trump at a, some meeting thing they're at, because, you know, rich people at meeting government world leaders and that sort of thing. He says, ah, you know, Africa loves you, Donald. And he was yeah. just, just kind of making 
small talk anyway. This somehow gets into the media because, of course, the media is the only thing it's more obsessed with than uh, race in South Africa is Donald Trump. Yeah. Even though it's got almost nothing to do with it. But, but it <laughs> let's leave that aside for a second. Yeah. Um, and people demand that he apologizes. Now, yeah, they said it's un-African of you to say that Africa loves firstly, Donald Trump. Firstly, he was basically saying the United States. Yeah, Africa loves the United States. Yep. Was the clarification. In fact, he said Africa loves the United States. But right? it was reported then, as Donald Trump. or being, yeah. It was implied that he meant it about Donald Trump. So firstly, um, I think that's actually empirically true. When, yeah. they, when they surveyed people across Africa, they find that there's over 50% approval of the United States. Yep. Despite the best efforts of... Decades of of, of, of Marxist of, sausage factories um, churning yeah. out vitriol to throw on the Star Spangled Banner. Because it turns out that people uh, like American action movies far more than they like their kleptocratic regimes. Yeah, <laughs> and John Claude Van Damme might be the Brussels from muscles, muscles from Brussels, but he's American too. Yeah, he's, like it's he's, all he's, he's, what he uses in his American films, and he flies bald eagles and shoots hot dogs or whatever. Apparently, it is. he's big in in the Congo. Fun fact I heard from someone who came back from there. Um, I do want to move on to something. Okay, now hold on. I just want to finish the story. I want to finish my telec point is that the media (laughs) can't explain BEE as a bad thing and race-based policy as a bad thing because by their own rules, that makes them racist. Mm. They don't know how to get out of that bind. And this is why I think the document by the DA is so important. If the DA adopts this policy... Then you've got a party with three, four million voters behind it. Mm. All of the editors know that they've got DA loyalists who've now voted for a party and the party's now saying, here we've gotten to the stage where race-based policy has been totally corrupted and we need to try something else. And now the media is saying that our guys are racist for saying that. They're going to start losing traction. They're going to start getting the same kind of response that CNN got in America and that some of the media got in the and 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 right now we have we don't have anything like uh it's it's all going one way right our media space really pretty much all tracks the same way and i think what you'll find is either a splintering to for for some major media house to come out sympathetic to the new da da policy and also or, or, or a general shift in favor of the DA's new policy because they'll find it easier to explain because they'll see the DA doing the hard work. This is what the DA can teach the media, how to explain to ordinary South Africans that this is not a way of trying to bring back apartheid. This is trying to, way, this is trying to find a way of ending the ongoing oppression that our state imposes on the most vulnerable people to the benefit of an oligarchic cartel at the top. Indeed. And I think that's great. So the DA could do it. Peter Bruce totally screwed it up. He's the <laughs> country's most <laughs> celebrated editor. And he read this Is passage he? <laughs> where he said, okay, so, so, so the policy document says, you know, we can't let the government, uh, we can't let the free market, it doesn't say we can't let the free market. It says, what is a social market economy? This is what the DA is into. I mean, and I think it, and was it goes through this definition where it basically says, "Look, it's a we want you know uh, consumers and businesses to be at the center of decision making, but occasionally the, mar- the, the, the government should intervene to prevent the creation of monopolies and stuff." It's a very sort of centrist idea yeah. of how it could fit into the centrist. Pl- it would be a plank in any centrist European exactly, parties. exactly. And uh, maybe, and but there's a slight emphasis, I think, to the more free markety r- right of the of the thing. Yeah, you know, um, but it's a very it's not controversial in any sort of no. economically successful place. So Peter Bruce <laughs> says, oh, whew, it's not a free market. They're, they're anti-free market, no yeah, free market. Apparently, this is the great thing. 
which first shows he's an idiot because he doesn't know what a free market is. He doesn't know what a free market is. Because he's read, he's read that a free market is where people in top hats and monocles walk down the street scattering pennies on the floor so that the poor can, can grab them before they get trotted on by huge businesses. And <laughs> I was going to say horses. Whatever. <laughs> I don't know why, how your businesses get around. Well, then, you know, obviously in that world. Minor in the cloud. The, 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 the <laughs> Are we mixing centuries across our metaphors? It's not really important because it's not based on any reality to begin with. Exactly. <laughs> this view. No, it's not. And I think it's just, so the thing that's super concerning about it to me is that there is this American-centric silly idea. If you come from America or Denmark or whatever, it's easy to think that government intervention starts very late in the game. And the government intervenes to stop Microsoft from owning the entire computer space. And now it's intervening to maybe stop Facebook from owning the entire social media space to break monopolies or oligopolies up. And when there's price fixing in South Africa, as there was with Tiger Brands, inflating the price of bread, then the government intervenes to stop these guys from colluding together to say, hey, I'll keep it at three rand if you keep it at three rand. I mean, one can make, I think, solid arguments that there are problems with those interventions as well. But they're not nearly the same as the government saying, oh, by the way, we're going to take your stuff and you can't do anything about it. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to decide how much we give you after that, if anything yes, at all. Yes, and here's how much you will pay your workers and <sighs> here's what you will do with your money and your coal and your whatever it is yeah. that you're doing. So, but I do think, I mean... Oh, and you can't have electricity either. <laughs> so, but so, so at, a, at, a, at a philosophical level, and I think it is worth going there for a moment, I think private property is something that all South Africans really should ask themselves, what is it? And it's also something that people outside of South Africa should ask themselves, what is it? Because the claim is, if you have a, property, a private property regime, a rule of law that serves private properties kind of robustness, serves it robustly, then you have the means for go forward. And you look at China, didn't have any private property rights, started changing it to get much more private property rights, relatively speaking, relatively speaking, in 1978. And then you've got the biggest happiness explosion in humanity in terms of life expectancy, meat, uh, protein consumption, uh, yeah. consumption uh, opportunity to explore avenues of life other than tilling a rice field. Yeah. <laughs> and other such scientific yes. measures. China did really, really well. Yes. Okay, and, oh, and 800 India, million people got lifted out of poverty. Yes, as, as India is currently doing. Okay, so the, the headline claim is that private property is the greatest innovation in the history of humankind mm. when it comes to raising people out of property, out of poverty. Now, if that's true, and I think it is, the question is, well, what is it? What is this innovation? And people don't dwell. It, it really is like plumbing. I don't know if you watched Wag the Dog, a great, one of the best movies about uh, American politics, about sort of generating a fake war. But one of its line was, there in, in every political party, there are the plumbers. There are the people who, if they're doing their job, you never think about them. And it's only when they're not doing their job that the shit hits the fan, <laughs> right? Private property is like that. Mm. It's something you only think about when the shit's hitting the fan. Mm. Excepting here, the shit's hitting the fan. I'm sorry for swearing so much. We said we wouldn't do it. It's hitting the fan and we're still not thinking about it. We're still acting as if, it's, uh, you know, it's neither here nor there. I think it is actually very precisely mm. definable. Private property is grounded in the rule of law. It is centered in a coordination of violence organized by a society that under certain rules says who has what and under what circumstances can they then exchange that. So basically, 
the state can't take your, your stuff and also people can't take your stuff and the state will make sure that people and itself don't take your stuff. Yeah. And if the state tries to take your stuff, there should be other branches of the state, hence a separation of powers, yes. that you can appeal to to stop the state from taking your stuff. Exactly. And the, and the thought goes slightly deeper than that. It's to say that also if someone's taking my stuff, it's kind of – and I'm in a room full of, full of other citizens. Mm. They'll help me not have my stuff taken. Yes. That's the, that's the grounding principle. And then the police and the rule of law, that's like outsourcing the job of us helping each other out yeah. to turn possession. Possession is a different thing. Pos to possess something is to have the use of it. Mm. I, can, I can steal your car. I've got the use of it. I'm busy driving it around. You steal your daddy's car. When you're 18, you go for a drive around. You've got the possession of it, but you don't own it. Why don't you own it? You can't sell it. Because you can't sell it and because people aren't going to help you keep it. They're going to help your dad keep it. Yeah. He's the one who owns it. To own something is to have a tacit contract with the people in your community, in your society, mm. that you're the one who gets to decide where this goes. And if that someone is trying to break that right, you're going to get protected. Much like what is the right to life? The right to life is not just to be alive. It's that if someone tries to come and kill me, there's a system in place, a coordination of violence that brings to bear the force of the law upon those who would, who would try to kill me. Yeah. That is what a property right is. It is the force of the law coming out to help you keep your stuff yes. so that you don't have to. Spend all of your time defending your house with barbed wire and security guards and lawyers and whatever it is that you might need, uh, which is what you need when there aren't property rights, is you need all of those things so that you can defend off the state and the criminals from, from taking your stuff. And that yeah. drains resources uh, and it makes everything inefficient and everything rubbish. Yeah. Ask, ask dudes trying to do trade along the Silk Road <laughs> yeah. what it was like to live in a world of possession, not of property it's rights. When Turkic bandits could come down upon your caravan, kill half of the people and steal your entire life saving in one go. Yeah. Um, but I do, I do want to move on to something a little bit, okay, so, a little bit fun. Yeah, so let's move on to something fun. Just remember what a property right is and remember why that matters. It means in a free market... The government, protects the government your is rights. protecting your rights. So if, if, if Tiger Brands is stealing your money effectively by pretending that this is the price of bread because they've done a collusionary thing uh, where they and the other big players have said, like, we're not going to sell bread for anything less than three rand, they're stealing your money effectively. It's a complicated way to steal money, but remember that another thing about property rights is you get title deeds, you get stock markets, you get limited liability corporations, you get all kinds of sophisticated financial instruments, and so you get more and more sophisticated ways of stealing people's like intellectual property and so on. And so much of this government intervention is just the same intervention in that it is from the very start. The government's intervention should always be to protect the free market, which means to protect people from having their stuff taken. So it's not anti-free market to say no price fixing. It's free market to say no price fixing. It's anti-free market to say, I want your stuff. No, I'm not paying. Why? Because. <laughs> That's anti-free market. So we predicted at the beginning of last year. We oh, talked man. about some, some fun, this fun scenario, right? We might we seem said, dumb, we said, we but said we get some things right. We said that... Uh, Jacob Zuma and Cyril were going to end up in, in, in like a siege of Nkandla. Like the like Zuma was going to get an arrest warrant issued against him. 
and he was going to call out the the impi to defend him like the his his supporters in KZN he's like real rough kind of warlords who back Zuma would come out with their followers of, yeah. and they'd fight off the police and the army as they attempted to extract Zuma from Ankandla and it was going to be this great drama and you're going to have international helicopters flying over yeah CNN and BBC would have their helicopters flying over Ankandla while the sort of impi and the army engage Battle in out, yes, yeah. for the soul of the nation well <laughs> due to <laughs> sounded crazy due to zuma being i don't even know what the word for it is so he he he, he says i can't come to court i can't come to court for this thing and oh, i'm sorry, sick really sorry. And i'm sick and here's my note and the judge looks at the note and there's a whole bunch wrong with it but my favorite thing wrong with it is that next to medical condition as to the reason he cannot arrive is that it says medical condition <laughs> so apparently he's sick with medical condition which sounds bad <laughs> so i mean dude I, we've all got medical conditions so the judge says um at this well point. i mean he might be sick but i'm afraid that i can't accept this because <laughs> the date has been changed <laughs> it's this medical yeah, thing they drew the, the first month of 2020 And then they just changed the one into a two, <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't scratch it up. They just like so, embellished it. So, so then uh, a, a warrant of arrest, which is not in force yet, it'll it'll only come into enforce in in May if Zuma fails to appear in court. Gets issued saying you need to come and explain to the court why you cannot be here. Yeah. <laughs> so Zuma and Zuma tweets a two-year-old picture, without context. It's the first thing he's tweeted the whole year. of him leaning over a four-wheel quad bike aiming a rifle off into the distance with a scope nothing else gets 18,000 likes on twitter by the way which is big in south africa it's very big in south africa riddle me that hey the siege is coming dude that is a great taunt i think it's a great week of taunts john cian hazen b is costing People ten percent, go figure. And Zuma on his quad bike with his rifle, staring into the distance, looking really jolly. Yeah, yeah, he's, he's and, looking, uh, looking pretty chilled, you know. Yeah, and you got to remember that guy's a soldier. Yeah, no, he's a uh, and and uh, it, it 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 is it is a little bit of a of a challenge. Um, and personally, if uh, if we have to watch the collapse of our country around us. and the tidal wave of human suffering that is about to in, engulf us all. Yeah. The least we can do is love. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know. I suppose we can tell that joke because we also do work to try and do other things. But it is kind of I mean, I suppose part of what's the, the it is funny because the the really funny thing about it to me is that Zuma could win. <laughs> But we have The most sophisticated economy in Africa. We have theoretically a huge army, but I'm not betting on us. No, no, no. I'm not sure who us is. I, I'm pretty sure that the average age. So most armies have an average age of somewhere between twenty and thirty, right? Yeah. And the U.S. Army is about twenty-three. Uh, I believe the South African average age is like thirty-eight or something. Yeah, it's basically a retirement fund for 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 a mixture of MK vets and uh, a couple of old SA DF. So I think the MK vets would be great. I think you can have a few MK vets who're going to be remembering the well, well, what, uh, if, what uh, if they send in the the, the 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 troops and they defect halfway through the battle to Zuma's side and start fighting on the other side. 
It wouldn't be the first time in political history that that's happened. <laughs> Dude, and it does kind of, I mean, so it's kind of is like the scene from Tom Sharp, who is, a, he's British, he might be Welsh, uh, professor, who comes down to South Africa to teach history in Peter Maritzburg in the 70s, I think it is, 60s. And he sticks around, but eventually he's sort of finding it a bit mindless and it's a bit frustrating. So he starts writing satires set in Pimburg, he calls Peter Maritzburg, because it's the oldest British place. And his first satire is called Riotous Assembly. It ends with a lady who's gone to an insane asylum to get off a murder charge, coordinating a rehearsal of the Battle of, not Isaldwana, not Rourke's Drift. What's the one where the Brits... Ulundi. Ulundi, mm. yeah. Battle of Ulundi where the Brits beat the Zulus. And uh, everyone that's in this battle rehearsal is clinically insane. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got the schizophrenics, you've got the manic depressives, you've got the... And the and the and the and they and the, the black people dress up as Zulus. That's how you choose the team. And the white people dress up as redcoats, and they go about the thing. And they've made sure. And then you get like the the viceroy or the governor or whatever to come and check this thing out. Although no, it's in apartheid, so you get the yeah, new yeah, apartheid yeah. guys, and they're like coming to watch it. And they're like, "But is this safe?" And they say, "You know, don't worry. Those aren't real sticks, and those aren't real guns. We wouldn't do that. We've given them like rubber, um, blow up uh, doll kind of equipment." But it turns out, firstly, that not all of the stuff is, is, is that kind of equipment. It turns out, secondly, that there's a few sex maniacs that get really turned on by latex blow-up rubber materials. And when they start... You know, I thought after our Greek art discussion last week that we'd be free <laughs> of some of this, but yet here we are. Dude, when they start, it kind of just freaks everyone else out. And then they got real cannons to like blow, they weren't supposed to shoot anything, but it does make a powerful noise. And that really gets the schizophrenics going. And then the manic depressives start get going. And eventually they, I mean, it's a massacre. It's a proper massacre to end this thing. And it's kind of like a joke on this idea that first tragedy, first history plays itself out in tragedy and then in farce. And it's, and both times people die. But there is just something frustrating. There's something about the fact that we're just repeating the same old mistakes yes. that does make uh, comedy feel like a necessary outlet in order to maintain one's sanity. Because n this, what is happening now, what has happened this week, feels so unsurprising to me. Yeah, it feels just like you know you, you could you could look at some of these developments, you change around a couple of names here and there, and it's like the 1980s with the Nats. I mean, come on, people. Yeah. Did you not? You, it's you, us. You it's fought us. them. You fought them. Didn't you learn anything? <laughs> it's literally us. We are, it's not like making the same, like the tulip bubble crisis in Amsterdam in the 1600s. Okay, I get it if you make that mistake twice. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't read your history book. But this is like you didn't read your own memories. Yes. <laughs> you don't have to open a book or just close your mouth for a minute and remember. Or you spend less than five minutes thinking about what actually made the previous system rubbish. Yeah. So on that note. Yeah. Uh, we will actually finally finish an episode at about an hour. Thank you very much for listening. Um, support the IRR. Please uh, subscribe to us on whatever um, podcast device you are using. 
share our podcast with your friends if you thought it was entertaining. And we'll catch you in the next episode of Two Crickets in a Thorn Tree.